Incoming transmission. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to True Spies. Week by week, mission by mission, you'll hear the true stories behind the world's greatest espionage operations. You'll meet the people who navigate this secret world. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? This is True Spies. You have to anticipate that everything will go wrong, that you will be rejected, that you will be lied to, that the record that you have compiled will be refuted, and maybe even that you will be harmed. Episode 38, Freeing Meek Mill. In 2017, private detective Tyler Maroney landed the case of a lifetime. Police corruption, a failing prison system, a superstar rapper. As cases go, it really had it all. His task? To dig deep, really deep. To gather the information that would exonerate one of the biggest names in American hip hop, to serve justice to justice itself. Every day that Meek was still in prison was a reminder that we had not yet finished our job, that we had not cracked this case. He's talking about Meek Mill, hip-hop royalty. He counts Nicki Minaj and Drake as collaborators. He has adoring fans all over the world and powerful friends in A-list circles. He's the kind of person that you might believe to be untouchable. But in November 2017, Meek Mill was looking down the barrel of a four-year prison sentence. And it wasn't his first. Well, so what? He wouldn't be the first rapper to spend time behind bars. But Meek Mill's most recent offence was, well, relatively Meek. Meek was arrested for popping a wheelie during a video shoot. A video had emerged of Meek Mill and friends riding dirt bikes through the lamplit streets of Manhattan, weaving between the city traffic. At one point, he popped a wheelie, riding on his back wheel with his front wheel in the air. Dangerous? Perhaps. But a felony? Well, the NYPD certainly thought so. When they found the video on his social media, they charged him with reckless endangerment. His lawyers expected it to be treated like a misdemeanor. Maybe he'd be slapped on the wrist with a caution, at worst, a fine. They hadn't counted on Judge Janice Brinkley. Based on his previous convictions, she decided that Meek deserved a lengthy stint in prison. But this isn't a cautionary tale about wearing a helmet or even posting incriminating videos on the internet. This is the story of a man and the private investigator who exposed the corruption behind his conviction. Just because a fact is stated in a court filing or it has a judge's signature on it or because a police officer has testified to it doesn't mean that you should believe it. So how did Meek Mill arrive at this point? Let's rewind to 2007 when Meek Mill was just plain old Robert Williams, a regular teenager growing up in Philadelphia. 
The streets where Meek grew up were impoverished and dangerous, scarred by the legacy of the crack epidemic that had torn through America's inner cities in the 1980s and 90s. One dark winter evening, a 19-year-old Meek headed to his local store. Days earlier, he'd witnessed the fatal shooting of a friend on a nearby corner. Before he left his home, he tucked a gun in his waistband for protection. But the moment he stepped out of his front door, officers from the narcotics field unit charged toward him. A witness said they used his head like a battering ram to break into his house. Then they arrested him. I believe it was 19 different police officers. It was as if the special forces were raiding his home. He was found guilty on drugs and weapons charges and sentenced by Judge Denise Brinkley to a stint of up to two years in prison and seven years probation. If he put a foot wrong in that time, he'd be back behind bars. And yes, that's the same judge who would sentence Meek to prison time for doing a wheelie in 2017. The terms of his probation meant that Meek Mill would spend 10 years in and out of prison, finding himself back in front of Judge Brinkley time and time again. He spent essentially his entire adult life on probation. So it's sort of extraordinary that during that decade, he became an international rap superstar. He had truly gained international notoriety at this point. And the restrictions became tougher and tougher because Meek was now traveling the world to perform. And these types of restrictions are not unique. The system is designed to keep tabs on anybody who has been released from the physicality of prison, but are still in a kind of figurative prison. Meek was aware of this, um, but the specifics of all of the restrictions are almost impossible to keep track of. In fact, Meek had somebody who was working for him whose full-time job was to alert law enforcement as to what his movements were so that he was staying as compliant as he possibly could be. By 2017, Meek's profile had risen to the point that his sentence for the wheelie incident triggered a public outcry. Fans and civil rights activists joined Meek's family in a frenzy of collective outrage. They believed that he was stuck in an endless cycle of parole and incarceration, trapped by a system that disproportionately targets African-Americans. You might find it interesting to know that a black person in America is five times more likely to be arrested than a white person. In some states, this disparity doubles. To his supporters, it was clear that he'd been failed by the police and by the criminal justice system. But how to prove it? Enter Tyler Maroney, PI. There are so many different definitions of private detective that it's hard to categorize them all. Uh, in fact, when I'm at a dinner party, I will identify myself in different ways depending on who I'm speaking to because I know that there are so many stereotypes and mythologies around the field of private investigations. Probably the most common misunderstanding is that we are all surveillance experts, um, former cops, especially in the United States, who spend time in the bushes with long lenses. 
Um, the other more modern stereotype, I suspect, of the private detective is a former intelligence operative, somebody who comes out of the Mossad or MI6 or the CIA and, and brings to the private sector the skills he or she had in the espionage field. So I think the two of those stereotypes combine to make it both a frustrating industry to work within because people assume that you have one skill when in fact you have another, but also a thrilling industry to work within because you get to put on different hats every day. When we say private investigator, you probably have an image in your head of a man in a trench coat, right? Has he got a trilby pulled down hard over a furrowed brow? Is he taking shelter from the drizzle beneath a solitary lamppost? People often assume Tyler's work comes straight out of the noir novels of Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler. There is some truth to that in the sense that we are um, often working for companies and families that have some mystery that law enforcement could not solve. Um, but our clothing and our tactics and our tone of voice and our weaponry is often quite different than what's imagined uh, in fiction. It's also more techy. These days, a PI is more likely to be armed with a laptop than a revolver, more hard drive than hard boiled. The modern private detective is someone who I think can combine the continental op, which is you know, the nameless private detective of Dashiell Hammett novels, and Mr. Robot. In other words, someone who can both understand the value of human intelligence, um, but also digital data. And in that sense, I think it is crucial that the private detective of today um, is not just a database monkey or a charismatic international man or woman of mystery, but someone who can combine both. You might be surprised and disturbed to know just how much someone can find out about you if you live in the United States. It is astounding how much information is available about people, such as their dates of birth, their social security numbers, the addresses where they live, companies to which they are linked, how much they paid for their home, the deed for their home, what debts they have, whether they've been sued, criminal records, the list goes on and on and on. And these are all considered public records in the United States and to a lesser extent in some other countries. And the ability to find and navigate those databases, some of which are official, i.e. government run, some of which are commercial, therefore private, is crucial to the modern private detective game. Even Tyler, a man whose job depends on this kind of applied snooping, is kind of horrified by just how little privacy the average citizen actually has. I was alarmed when I joined the industry 15 years ago, and among my first assignments from my new boss was to run a background check on myself. And the purpose of that was to teach me how much information is out there that the average person does not have access to. And I was trained in using databases that are also used by uh, law enforcement, by the medical industry, by the insurance industry, and others that are granted access to these types of databases. And the first database search I ran was 
a data aggregator that listed every address to which I'd ever been linked, both personally or professionally. So it was my first real revelation about how much information is out there and also how quickly it's sold and disseminated. Spooked? Well, don't worry about it too much. Not just anyone can access this information. Your ex-partner can't just find out where your new house is, if that's what you're wondering. Almost all of the databases to which we have access um, require that you have a purpose, some kind of legal purpose to access it. For instance, that you are working on behalf of an attorney as part of a legal proceeding or a regulatory proceeding, whether that be civil or criminal or otherwise, or that you are involved in some kind of a transaction that has been initiated by the subject of the investigation. Tyler isn't a spy in the strictest sense of the word, but he does have a nose for sniffing out the truth. Before making the jump to private detective work, he honed those senses as an investigative journalist. When I discovered investigative work, it really gave me a sense of purpose because I had previously been a generalist, meaning one day I would cover diplomacy, the next day I'd cover sports, the day after that I'd cover an art opening. And although that was thrilling, I didn't really have a sense of purpose. But when I discovered investigative work, the hunt for hidden information and exposing things was just really a thrilling turn in my career. Uh, and it was truly a rite of passage for me. And I by chance met somebody at Kroll, which is the kind of legendary private investigations firm that's been around since the early 1970s. Kroll describes itself as the leading global provider of business intelligence and investigation services. In other words, these are the big boys of the private investigations industry. Through his connection at the company, Tyler used his experience as a journalist to secure a position as a PI. He discovered that his skills and personality traits were highly transferable. And that included everything from being a contrarian, which means you know, not trusting the official line to being a bit paranoid and neurotic about everything and anything, which is an incredibly valuable uh, skill in this business. In 2010, he started his own private investigation firm. Tyler's company would focus on large, sophisticated projects, which served the public interest. In other words, they dealt with big, juicy cases, brought to them by a mix of corporate clients wealthy private citizens, and NGOs. Tyler and his colleagues are the last resort for people who have exhausted their options. People like Meek Mill. They have Googled to the end of the earth, they have hired other consultants, and they still can't figure out the answer to the problem. And this includes everything from searching for stolen assets that have been squirreled away offshore to proving that trade secrets from a software company have been misappropriated to conducting a background check on a prospective CEO to exposing evidence that a politician has been accepting bribes for contracts. So it's a huge range of assignments, all of which have this quest for hidden information at their core. Tyler's clients go to him to get hold of information that, more often than not, someone doesn't want them to have. And that was just the kind of information Meek Mill's legal team needed. So, it's your job to uncover the evidence that will get Meek Mill out of prison 
for good. Where do you start? Ten years have passed since Meek was raided by the Philadelphia Narcotics Field Unit. The case is closed, and as a private investigator, you don't have the same resources as law enforcement. How are you going to unpick this case? What's your first step? Well, before you start knocking doors and taking names, you need to get your paperwork in order. Which included lists of police officers who were there that night, affidavits by the police officers who had made the arrest that described their reason for the arrest, such as evidence that the day before they had seen Meek being involved in what they claimed was a drug deal on the corner a few blocks from his arrest. At first glance, these documents don't look like much. But if you read them closely, they're full of colorful information that could prove very useful to a diligent detective. It also described very specifically what the police officers witnessed Meek do before they arrested him, including walking from the house where his cousin lived to a street corner where they claimed they witnessed a drug sale. But as a PI, Tyler's come to know that you should never take the official documents at face value. There was enough detail in this alleged drug sale that we decided to recreate it ourselves. So, Tyler, in true gumshoe style, returned to the scene of the crime with his partner, Luke. Had the alleged drug deal really happened the way the report said it had? Had it happened at all? Only one way to find out. Time to lay down some shoe leather. Tyler had to walk the exact same route that the officers had detailed in their report. See through their eyes. It was the only way he could be sure that they were telling the truth. And not only walked it, but measured it foot by foot to make sure that what was written down in the official record reflected reality. And we discovered a few things quite quickly. One is that many of the statements by the police officers do not appear to have been accurate. For instance, they mentioned that they could see Meek coming out of a building while the police officers were sitting in a car. Almost immediately, Tyler smelled a rat. We discovered that the car could not have been parked where the police officers claim it was parked while also seeing the door of the house and also with the vantage point of the alleged drug deal. So the police officer would have had to have gotten out of his car and followed Meek down the street in one direction and back up the street in the other direction without Meek noticing. Hmm, interesting. Either this police officer was supernaturally stealthy or his report was inconsistent with physical reality. And as he pounded the pavement, Tyler discovered more. Another point that we noticed quite quickly is that the description of Meek was not reflective of what Meek looked like at the time, whether it had to do with his height, the style of his hair, or the color of his skin. And there were enough details that, although not every one of them was inaccurate, this was essentially what we were saying was death by a thousand cuts, so much so that it was almost shockingly so, as opposed to one big mistake. The case was coming into focus. Through sheer forensic hard work, Tyler and his team had found serious discrepancies in the official police report. But this was just the beginning. 
another breakthrough came from somebody who had a deep personal investment in the case. Meek Mill's mother. Hello again, True Spies listeners. This episode is made possible with the help of June's Journey, a thrilling detective game which you can play right on your phone. If you're a True Spies listener, it's safe to assume you're interested in clandestine missions, investigative adventures, and deciphering the latest mystery. You can find all of this in abundance and more in June's Journey. In the game, you'll play as the plucky June Parker, an amateur detective in the roaring 1920s. Poor June is set to investigating in order to find the truth of her sister's untimely murder. But I don't want to give too much away, because the fun of June's journey is seeing where this twisting story takes you. But I've just come to a grisly conclusion, thanks to working alongside other real players online as part of a detective club. Take heed, though. Not everyone wants to be June's friend. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android. Every day in America, 60 million packages are delivered. But we don't always know what's inside. He bent down to pick the package up. That's when the device detonated. Danger is everywhere, and no one is safe in Austin, Texas, as law enforcement hunts a serial bomber for 19 days. From Sony Music Entertainment, Campside Media, and Pegalo Pictures, this is Witnessed. 19 days. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to binge all episodes or listen weekly wherever you get your podcasts. In conversation with her one day, she was describing how bloodied up Meek was on the day that he was arrested. And one thing led to another, and she mentioned to Luke that she had photographs of that day before Meek was hauled off to prison. And she gave those photographs to Luke. And many of those photographs ended up in the media. And those were incredibly valuable because they you know, are visual evidence of what happened to Meek that day. Police brutality. That's the kind of thing that can cause serious problems for a prosecutor. Evidence contradicting the official report was stacking up. But Tyler needed more. He needed witnesses. Which meant tracking down and interviewing every one of the cops who were there that day that we could find. Most of the so-called eyewitness details in the police report had come from the testimony of one man, the arresting officer, Reggie Graham. Had Reggie lied in front of the judge? Was he the reason Meek Mill was trapped in this vicious cycle, ricocheting from prison to parole? All Tyler knew was that the success of this investigation could very well hinge on Reggie's credibility as a witness, and more specifically, the lack of it. They needed to prove that his word alone could not be trusted. They needed evidence. To get it, they decided to try and track down former officers who had known Reggie during his time on the force. They eventually found an ex-officer called Jeffrey Walker, Jeffrey wasn't there on the night of Meek's arrest, but he knew Reggie Graham and he was willing to talk. Jeffrey Walker is a former member of the narcotics field unit who had worked with Reggie Graham. We wanted to talk to Jeff Walker, but we had a problem because Jeffrey Walker had spent time in prison himself, um, in federal prison. 
And the reason that Walker had spent time in prison, that he'd been caught stealing from other drug dealers. And so he was, of course, a former police officer. So Jeffrey had credibility issues of his own. But there was still a likely chance he'd have some useful information, especially when it came to other corrupt officers. And at this point, we also knew that Jeffrey Walker had gone through a real rite of passage himself. Um, He was now a former inmate, a convicted felon himself, and had been very public previously in testifying in the cases um, of other police officers who'd been alleged to have been engaged in crimes themselves. So he had become somebody who was very publicly willing to speak out against police misconduct. And he was very willing to tell us about the nefarious behavior of his former colleagues in the narcotics field unit. Jeffrey told them some very interesting stories. Stories that included him and his fellow officers stealing from drug dealers, planting evidence, raiding homes without warrants. Doing anything that he could do and that other police officers could do to get overtime, which would essentially double or triple their salary, even if it was something small that would allow them to say that they had witnessed an arrest. If that arrest then allowed the police officer to show up in court, the police officer would get paid for that. So they were not only quite literally pocketing money from the drug dealers they were arresting, but they were also stealing from the taxpayer in the sense that they were working overtime on cases that they had no business working. They met with Jeffrey Walker roughly a dozen times over a few months. Eventually, he told them what he knew about Reggie Graham. And ultimately, we were able to get an affidavit from Jeff Walker that said that he had witnessed Reggie Graham commit crimes and that he knew that Graham had probably lied many times in arrest records and other official documentation. So although Jeff Walker was not there the day that Meek was arrested, He knew Meek's arresting officer very well and was able to give us incredible detail and testimony that helped chip away at the credibility of Reggie Graham. So, you've got a sworn affidavit that implicates the star witness against your client in a culture of endemic police corruption. Good start. Don't stop now, because when you think about it, there's another detail from the night of that arrest that doesn't quite add up. Remember, one of the charges that had originally landed a 19-year-old Meek in prison was pointing his gun at officers. But you only have the officer's word as evidence. And after your conversation with Jeff Walker, you know that their word can't be relied upon. Day and night, Tyler and his colleagues sifted through reports and papers. They scoured criminal investigations into the narcotics unit, civil investigation reports, internal investigations, and complaints from Meek's relatives. But then, the breakthrough they needed. One of the documents we got in our official records requests was a list of all of the police officers who were there when Meek was arrested. And there were 18 or 19 names on them. And through other investigative methods, we were able to discover that there were people who were there that day who were not on this list. This was big. Why had these names been omitted from the official report? Had they been intentionally excluded? 
Is there something that those police officers knew that the government did not want the world to know? The answer would prove to be a turning point for Tyler's investigation. So we tracked down those police officers. First on their list of missing officers was Gerald Gibson. Unlike Jeffrey, he was there on the night of Meek's arrest. The most explosive piece of information Gibson had for us was that he had no recollection at all that Meek had pointed a gun at any police officer as he was accused to have done. Here was a witness deliberately left off the official record that denied the Philadelphia PD's account of Meek's arrest. For someone, somewhere, this was convenient. And they were getting closer to finding out who. They kept going. They spoke to more officers and corroborated Gibson's testimony. Every single police officer we spoke to said that there's no way that Meek would be alive today had that happened because their training requires them to pull out a weapon and likely shoot if a defendant or a suspect pulls out a weapon. There it was. The relentless hours of paper shuffling, the dead-end leads, it had all led to this. Armed with this new testimony, Meek's lawyers could appeal the original drugs and gun charges and get him out of prison for good. It felt, well, great. That's the most thrilling part of private detective work is to come across some gem that you know is going to be useful. And not only the information itself, but to have a witness multiple witnesses who are willing to testify to that in a document or in court to put their credibility on the line, to put their reputations on the line in support, not of Meek, but perhaps of the truth. But don't celebrate too soon. The investigation wasn't over yet. There was still one more witness they needed to find, Reggie Graham. The man whose testimony had put Meek in prison in the first place. Reggie Graham had left the police department and had moved to Florida. He'd gotten involved in church activities and, if I remember correctly, was even considering a career in music. So he'd kind of changed his life quite drastically. We got to the suburban subdivision where Graham lived and were quite nervous about this approach because it was a very quiet, family-oriented community. There were children's bikes on lawns. There were people sitting outside enjoying the afternoon sun. And so people could see us walking up to Graham's house. His neighbors noticed us. Children noticed us. Stop. You're on the lawn of the man who your lawyers are about to discredit in court based on the testimonies you've collected from his former colleagues. He's a pillar of the community and essentially you're about to accuse him of corruption. He's never been indicted or found guilty, so in a way, you're asking him up front, is this true? Did you do the things people say you did? It could all go very, very wrong. You have to anticipate that everything will go wrong, that you will be rejected, that you will be lied to, that the record that you have compiled will be refuted, and maybe even that you will be 
harmed. I mean, to be completely honest, we don't carry weapons in our work, but when approaching a former police officer, um, there's always a possibility that he or she is carrying a weapon. And so there is a, a component of danger that we consider. We were determined not to make this an adversarial conversation. And if it would turn into that, we had decided we would likely just walk away. But we also had an obligation to talk to Graham. I mean, you, you can't accuse someone of of a crime or of any kind of wrongdoing or fraudulent behavior without getting their take on it. And that's something I learned as an investigative journalist. Um, you, you must give defendants or witnesses or suspects an opportunity to respond um, to what they've been accused of. You're on a stranger's doorstep. He has no idea who you are. You have no official powers. How do you get him to talk? One of the things that private detectives don't have is the ability to compel someone to speak. We knew that Graham could simply slam the door in our face. We knew he could tell us to get off of his property. We knew he could refuse to talk. So our goal was to try to prove to Graham how hard we'd worked and how credible we were and to essentially convince him to hear us out. And that worked. People respect research. It looks good. I mean, there were days when we would carry three ring binders stacked full of documents and that we would show to people, maps, uh, witness testimony, trial testimony, media reports, police arrest records, affidavits, you name it. We had everything and they were dog-eared and they were wrinkled and they had post-it notes on them and we wanted to make sure that we were able to um, be convincing to anyone we spoke to. And again, that goes back to the fact that we don't have the ability as private detectives to force anyone to speak to us. So we have to use our credibility to do so. It worked. Graham agreed to speak to the detectives. But how would he react to the evidence against him? Would he break down, confess everything, get angry, kick them out, pull a gun? To Graham's credit, he was not confrontational in the way that I suppose he could have been. And although he spoke to us for more than an hour, he didn't budge at all. And he did not acknowledge that any of the work we did was accurate. That didn't matter, however. It's not our job ultimately to make those decisions. We are fact gatherers who present our information in court. Um, certainly if if... Reggie Graham had confessed to a crime. If he'd confessed to lying in documentation, it would have been even more explosive, but we didn't expect him to. Perhaps Reggie had thought back to his days on the force. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. He was giving nothing away. So, without a confession from Reggie, would Meek's lawyers still be able to make a case? Short answer, yes. They decided that the testimony from Reggie's fellow officers was enough to go on. The important thing was that they'd given Reggie options. He'd been given a chance to respond to the allegations and refused it. Whatever happened next, he couldn't claim that he'd been misrepresented. Tyler needn't have worried too much about the strength of Reggie's reputation. As it turned out, that ship had sailed. Around the same time as their visit to the Graham household, 
the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office disclosed what became known as the Do Not Call list. It was a list of current and former police officers whom prosecutors had sought to keep off the witness stand over allegations of misconduct. And on that list was, you guessed it, Reggie Graham. Under his name, the list noted that Reggie had been investigated by federal authorities for several alleged acts of corruption and had retired before his hearing. The publication of this list was explosive. It bolstered the witness statements Tyler and his team had collected and struck a fatal blow to Reggie's credibility as a witness. When Tyler and Luke confronted him about the do not call list, he remained a closed book. Confrontation to him was not something new, which is probably why he wasn't very intimidated by us. Also, to his credit, he didn't have any reason to alter the the record. Um, He had not been disciplined for any wrongdoing. He has not been accused of a crime. Without Reggie, Tyler and his team were gambling that the evidence they'd already collected from his colleagues would be enough. The gamble paid off. In April 2018, five months into Meek Mill's four-year sentence, his legal team took the evidence to a Pennsylvania Court of Appeals. He was granted bail. The appeals court removed Judge Brinkley from the case. She was later investigated by the FBI for partial treatment of Meek. He was granted a retrial for his 2007 arrest due, in large part, the evidence Tyler and his team uncovered about Reggie Graham. In August 2019, Meek Mill's legal battle was declared over. After 12 years of agony for his family, it was an indescribable relief. For a man dogged by allegations of criminality for his entire adult life, it was a public vindication. A success for social justice and the spark for parole reform in Pennsylvania. Finally, for Tyler and his team, it was an exceptional victory. All their meticulous work had paid off. A man was free. The day that it was announced that Meek was off probation and had put his legal troubles behind him was among the most thrilling days of my career as both a private detective and a, and a journalist, because it was the culmination of six months of work, weekends, nights, all geared towards revealing some kind of hidden information, but much more than that. It was an opportunity to work outside the system to examine the system itself. In the United States, one of the issues that anyone accused of a crime has is that they are always facing a government and a prosecutor's office and a police force that is funded and resourced much more so than a defense. In the sense that anyone who's been accused of a crime has a huge uphill battle. And with Meek's case, we knew that we had the resources and the support, not just of Meek and his family and his advocates and his lawyers, but of the public as well. And that gave us tremendous energy. And in fact, this inspired us As a private investigator, Tyler says this case has been one of the most formative of his career. First and foremost, it taught him never to trust the official record. The second big takeaway from Meek's case for us as an investigative firm, to think much bigger about our role as private detectives in the world. 
instead of being simply opportunists, Meek's case has inspired us to seek out many other investigations that benefit the public interest, whether it's reforming the criminal justice system, uncovering official political corruption, or exposing the causes of climate change. And these are all kind of big picture ideas that we keep in the back of our heads so that in many ways we can reverse engineer an investigation. By which I mean, instead of waiting for a client to come to us with an assignment, we'll often look at an issue and figure out where we can play a role. Tyler Maroney. You can delve behind the scenes in the fascinating world of private investigations in his book, The Modern Detective. I'm Vanessa Kirby. Join us next week for another close shave with True Spies. We all have valuable spy skills and our experts are here to help you discover yours. Get an authentic assessment of your spy skills created by a former head of training at British Intelligence at spicegate.com. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes.